We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo. Thank you for not using like my Facebook name. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, not, not to keep time. it. It just throws me off. It throws me off. Like it's Don Dugan is my my maiden name, but sometimes you say Don Dugan Palumbo, and it's like what? Yeah. what? DDP. DDP. It has a nice ring to it, like DDP, DDP. like the diamond cutter, the wrestler. Anyways, we're yeah. we're here at Atypical. We're outdoors. We love it in the summertime. All two point seven months of it in North Dakota, and I'm so glad to see so many faces here enjoying I it know. with us. New faces. Yeah, a lot of, faces, some, some new faces. Veterans. I was yeah. going to say old faces, but then I realized I would be insulting somebody and I didn't mean that. So like, um, veteran faces. Returning like faces, returning we'll call faces. them, right? Yeah. The faces that return to us, not in our yeah. nightmares, but at our shows. I like so it. thanks for being with us at Atypical and a big thanks to Atypical for hosting us. And we appreciate everyone who takes a little bit of time out of their super busy life um, about 38 and a half seconds to review the show on iTunes. We appreciate that. It helps other people figure out whether or not they want to listen to us. It helps get us recognition out there in the world. And we just, uh, we kind of love it even when it's bad. So Don, I'm kind of wondering what are folks saying about us out there in the iTunes reviews world on Mid- of Mid- Midwest Murder? Well, Salty Old Cop gave us five stars. Okay. <laughs> just I the- wonder if Salty Old Cop's out here tonight. I don't think he's not. I, I know a salty old cop. He is okay, not. Yeah. Okay. Just, just the facts. I'm a police officer and have direct involvement in at least one case featured on this podcast. I know Don, her sister, and members of her family, and they are all awesome people. <laughs> Thank you. I normally Aww. avoid these types of media due to my job. Many times I get frustrated from the lack of accuracy, suppositions, and opinion-based commentary. This podcast does a great job of staying with quote, just the facts in my best dragnet voice and allowing the listener to be immersed in the details of the case and the factual basis of the story. My wife and I have listened to nearly all of the podcasts and have attended one show live. Keep up the great work telling these stories and focusing on details, facts, and the victims and in these cases. Sincerely, Salty Old Cop. So thank you. We really, really appreciate that. That means a lot. Uh, Big time. You know, it's huge. Five stars, Andy Hogg. T-shirt idea. It feels icky. It feels, it feels icky. icky. And so Don and I had a little debate about when that was first said at a show. And I was listening back to an episode with my mom on our recent road trip family vacation. And in fact, it was the uh, episode uh, with the killers who were poaching old folks in the nursing home, the two yeah. women. And it was you who said, this feels icky. So, yeah. I've also said it, but it's returned. That's a I'm, recurring I'm glad, theme. I'm glad you showed up with receipts there. Yeah. I and mean, I'm glad that I was right. That's, that also helps. Yeah. Hey, um, listen, a lot of things have felt icky at times during this show. Very so. much so. Very much so. This show is also brought to you in part by Midwest Memoirs. And I just want to break this down. 
If you love the stories of your family and you want to be able to hear them forever, like a podcast that you can listen to with the future generations of your family, then you need to contact Midwest Memoirs because we're here to ensure those stories and the voices who tell them are never forgotten. Imagine hiring professionals to conduct a sort of as professional as Don Palumbo and I can be. Okay, I'm just saying we're, we're on some level we're pretty professional, but it's like a sort of 60 minutes interview that tells the story of your loved one's life. In a nutshell, that's what Midwest Memoirs is doing. It's really special, and I, for one, sleep better at night knowing that my Grandma Helen stories, she's in the audience with us, second time tonight, shout out to Grandma Helen. Hey, Grandma Helen. That's where this idea all started, my love for my grandma, but her stories will never never be forgotten, and we don't want the stories of your family to be forgotten either. You can find Midwest Memoirs on Facebook and Instagram today. And, you know, coming from the other side, uh, you know, my grandma just recently passed away and it was always something that I wanted to do and never got the chance to do. And so you have, you know, you're, you're grateful because you, you have it and I have those regrets. So we can, we can speak from both sides. In tonight's episode of Midwest Murder, we're heading back to 1981, one of my favorite years. I know why. Don't spoil it. Okay. Sandra Day O'Connor became the first female justice on the United States Supreme Court. Boxer Leon Spinks is mugged. His assailants even take his gold teeth. Raiders of the Lost Ark debuted in theaters and Ozzy Osbourne released his second solo album. Futuristic sports car, the DeLorean DMC-12, was produced for the first time. Now, here's the other part of the story I never knew. It sold about 9,000 units in two years before its founder, John DeLorean, ran into financial trouble and was charged with conspiracy to smuggle drugs. There was, an, uh, there was a documentary about it. Oh, it was makes pretty, sense. It was pretty interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali finally retires with a career record of 55 wins and five defeats. In 1981, the term internet is first mentioned. China clones the first fish. It was a golden carp. Post-it notes were launched, not by Romy and Michelle, Michelle. of course, but (laughs) by 3M Corp. IBM in the United States released its first personal computer, which uses Microsoft MS-DOS software. The internet, was it... Did it, was it said by Al Gore? Uh, Good question. Because didn't he invent the internet? I don't know that part of this trivia. (laughs) That's not true. But everybody was like, Al Gore invented the internet. It's it's a thing. I'd buy that for a dollar? Sure. I just repeat the jokes, okay? I got nothing. In 1981, Strawberry Shortcake, Care Bears, and Smurf Dolls, Atari Video Games, Light Bright, Big Wheels, and the Rubik's Cube were the most popular toys And John Hinckley Jr. shot President Ronald Reagan, later telling investigators he thought Reagan was a great guy. He just did it to impress actress Jodie Foster. Yeah, that was something. I feel like that didn't work. (laughs) Yeah. I I I don't think she swiped whatever left or right or whatever hell way he was hoping. I don't think it worked out. So I had planned to open this story with a little montage about the various rights movements of the 60s and 70s. You know the ones, Don, civil, equal, human, women's, etc. a lot of necessary things. Then I got derailed in a quest to learn what, what or who a Svengali is. Turns out Svengali was a fictional male character in the novel Trilby 
published in 1894. Svengali hypnotizes, dominates, exploits, manipulates, and controls the woman Trilby. Thus, a Svengali is a person with powers, usually a man, who controls another's mind through seduction and manipulation, usually with sinister intent. More on that later. We're going to put a pin in that one. We're going to put a little pin in that one. Then I thought to myself, nobody needs me to Jonah-splain the rights movements from this era. (laughs) However, I do want to remind everybody that trying to be equally employed as a woman or minority in that time period was, in fact, not great. Suffice to say, when federal anti-discrimination and equality laws were established in the 70s, there was a pretty damn good reason for that change. And it was met with a lot of resistance, even hostility, in many workplaces. Well, in 1978, that was when the the Women's Protection Act was uh, was put into place. Right. You know, where you couldn't get fired for being pregnant, and you know, all that, all that stuff. I mean, so we're not that far removed from that kind of bullshit. I mean, women, minorities, anything. It's it's absolutely insane that that happened. I mean, in almost our lifetime. And it took a hell of a lot of effort for that change. In 1972, the same year gender discrimination in public agencies was outlawed, the first female FBI agents were sworn in, and more and more women decided they wanted to be police. And I'm sure they were met with nothing but open arms. Oh, we're going to find out. Yeah. Public agencies were given financial incentives for equality hiring, and that sounds great in concept, but unfortunately the system was abused, perhaps even corrupted in some areas. Through the years, we've seen what bad or corrupt cops can do to undermine systems of justice and destroy public trust. Just how crooked it can get is well cataloged. Consider documentaries like The 7-5, the story of a cocaine ring run by police in New York City, or the HBO series We Own This City, a true story of moral failure and corruption in Baltimore. The list goes on. In the late 80s, nearly 10% of the Miami Police Department was suspended or fired after a drug-related scandal. On the other side of the country, the early seeds for what would become the L.A. Rampart scandal were in development. And these weren't just coastal issues. In the late 70s and early 80s, the Milwaukee, Wisconsin PD came under investigation for missing federal grant dollars, discrimination, abuse of equity grants, and more. Naked pictures of several male police officers taken in a public park at a police function, a celebration with families, also emerged. One of the We'll say models of these photos was a renowned man-whore cop named Fred Schultz. Detective Fred Schultz had a bit of a reputation. Quote, him and a bunch of cops owned this town, claimed a bartender at Tomter's Inn, where Schultz was a regular. Quote, they'd walk into places and the waitresses wouldn't want to serve them. They were so gross. They'd be on duty, and they'd sit and drink all day and piss in the ashtrays and grab girls' butts and then bring in their hookers for blowjobs up in the office. On duty. On well, duty. While working. On duty. I mean, that, oh, and that, that behavior is vile anyway, but also while they're, you know, claiming well, to protect and serve. If it makes you feel any better, Dawn, the hookers were being extorted for those blowjobs and not were. paid. Of course. Schultz and his boys didn't pay for that kind of stuff. 
Witnesses once saw Fred Schultz line up cocaine across an entire 20-foot bar for him and his boys to snort up. Schultz was like Kirk Douglas if you ordered him from Wish and he, <laughs> and he came with a police uniform. So, in addition to being a handsomely great cop, Schultz was a dad. Well, I hope he had boys so he can raise them to be he, such upstanding he citizens. Did. Cool. Schultz cool. was a dad of two boys. Awesome. Great. Throughout I hope they're Mil- good people. <laughs> Throughout Milwaukee's cop bars and taverns, Fred Schultz was known to hang out with drug dealers and convicted felons. According to George Markupolos, owner of Georgie's Pub and Grub, Schultz was a drinking buddy of Frederick Horenberger, an ex-convict who served time for manslaughter and armed robbery. So anyways, Fred Schultz, who is real fun at parties, super charismatic, manipulative, persistent in his pursuits, and definitely never slept, did drugs, or broke the law even one time on the job as a cop, somehow managed to parlay these many talents to catch the attention of a young former police recruit, Lorencia Bembenek, or Lori. Lori was warned by friends about Schultz. He slept around, lived hard, and couldn't be trusted. What also made their relationship kind of weird? They were hitting it off less than three months after Schultz got divorced, and just a few weeks after Lori Bembenek opened a discrimination case against the Milwaukee Police Department, during which time she turned in the previously mentioned naked cop photos you know the ones that included him so she's hot for him she's hot for kirk douglas lookalike yep he's hot for her he's more hot for her technically right and so she has these naked photos of the cops turns them in files a discrimination complaint and then after i just want to make sure that that i'm saying this right then after You've lined, it up, with what's his face. you've lined okay. it up about as clear as Fred okay. Schultz's 20-foot line of cocaine, Don okay. Palumbo. Okay, I just, wanted to be, yep. I just wanted to be clear. Okay. But let's back it up just a little bit. Who is Lorencia Bambinek? And how did she get photos of naked cops? And why did she turn them in? Lorencia Bambinek, the youngest of three girls, grew up on the south side of Milwaukee in a Polish Catholic blue-collar family. Lori's sisters were both more than 10 years her senior, so she sort of grew up like an only child. Her dad was a cop for a number of years before becoming a carpenter. Lori attended a private Catholic school until somewhere around middle school when a priest called her a slut because Lori was wearing shorts and sat with her feet up. Super cool. Lori's parents didn't really want to rock the boat. You know how those things went. So, Lori was eventually moved to public school. There, she was years ahead of the public school classwork. Lori could have graduated early, but opted instead for the high school work program that allowed her to clock in on actual jobs and work instead of take classes. She did cashiering, waitressing, and she really wanted to be a police aide, but the timing never worked out. She was also part of the first female track team in the state. In the years following graduation, 
Lori always worked, sometimes several jobs, and she won a scholarship to a business college earning an associate's degree in fashion merchandising management, working part-time to set up displays. She also got hired off and on as a model. I suppose it's fair now to mention that Lorencia Bembenek was 80s magazine cover girl pretty. Bleach blonde, curly hair, blue eyes, and her, and her legs were said to be a mile long. I appreciate that you talked about her smarts instead of her ass right away. Yeah, I'm not here Thank for you. that. Thank you. Yeah, that's the media does plenty of that for her, and we don't need to. So Lori spent a few years in love after high school, but it didn't work out. He wanted marriage and kids. Lori wasn't ready to settle, and she never wanted to have children. Then she applied to the police academy. Her boyfriend hated the choice and told her she wouldn't make it. But after a year of tests, physical and written, as well as a board interview, Lorencia Bembenek was accepted into the Milwaukee PD Police Academy. It was a really big deal. Cops weren't allowed to have long hair. Women were ordered to cut their hair. When Lori came home, her then boyfriend bitched about her, quote, dyke haircut and then took off to Florida with his buddy. Oh, wow. I'm glad he's not in the story very long. Yeah, he didn't make it. Wow. That's... Oh, gosh, the 80s were cool. Well, get this. Lori was supposed to be on that trip to Florida, but she couldn't go after being accepted into the academy, and he didn't want to change the plans. So he's just like, eh, peace out with your shitty haircut. I'm going. Wow. Cool. So that was the end of that. That was the end of that for those guys. Lori's class in police academy had 55 recruits. Nine were women. Police Academy was extremely militaristic with major physical demands and intense weekly training. Over and over, the recruits were reminded of the code of conduct and to support your partners, but also to never violate any of the rules of conduct, but also to report violations if you see them, even from your partner. There were many very scrutinizing rules that must be followed at all times. Rules such as No cohabitation, no vulgarities or harassment, no lewd or crude behavior, no marijuana use, and no devil worshiping. All the regular stuff. That seems clear. I mean, what? (laughs) Also, hang on. I... I want to. I just want to point this out real quick. So, the the rules the the rules of conduct, of course, were to you you had to follow those. But then strictly. But then, if if one of your, you know co-recruits, I guess, if you will, or, or co-workers at that point, uh, were violating any of those, you were supposed to report them as sure. well? Allegedly. Okay. okay. But so, also you were, yeah. So where does that get lost then? Oh, we're about to find out. Yeah, because yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, so doing a 20-foot line of coke on the bar, I feel like that's violating well. something. You this, know? this is rent-a-cop Kirk Douglas guy, so I think he's and he's you know he's he's okay to get away with it. You know, he's earned, he's earned his stripes, Don. Just wanted to point that out. Yeah, no, it's a astute observation. So in training, Lorencia was given the nickname Bambi. Oh, I bet that's cool. I would love that. Bambi sure. Bembenek, they called her Bambi. She fucking loved it. Not. In April of 1980, after Lorencia attended a party at another recruit's house, 
an anonymous complaint surfaced that Lori was smoking a marijuana cigarette with her badge pinned to her blouse. She also stopped at Thomas's house, a black dude, on the way to the party. That's where she either bought the marijuana or did some unlawful cohabitation. Lori denied the allegations. This was followed by an intense investigation and interrogation from commanding officers who then gave her a gag order that she could not discuss any of it. Every week it seemed another recruit was being called into the office and either dismissed or forced to resign. During police academy training, Lori had the misfortune of befriending fellow trainee Judy Zess, a real shit-ass of a person that Lori was also warned about. In spite of the warnings, they became friends. The two partied, went on a little road trip to Florida, and in May of 1980, Lori went to a Rufus and Shaka Khan concert with Judy and two others. Don, don't sing it or I, do, but here's your chance if I you promise, want it. I, you got, during, during mic check, I was actually singing Shaka Khan. Yeah, it was pretty good. You have no idea so, how hard I'm, I'm restraining myself. I'm, if you go to like karaoke my, with Don Palumbo, you want to request Shaka Khan. So I feel like you don't, but okay. <laughs> at the concert, Lori went to the bathroom. When she came back, Judy and her pal were getting arrested and yanked from the concert. Evidently, the women were smoking a joint, and the other gal with Judy had a nickel bag in her purse. If you don't know how much a nickel bag is, it's the equivalent to about one joint or one marijuana cigarette of marijuana. But Both no, women were charged with possession. No cocaine, though. No, just no a cocaine. nickel bag okay. of marijuana. I just yeah. was just curious. I wanted no. to make sure. I mean, cocaine, good. Fair question. Marijuana, bad. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You you got it right. Okay. You've taken notes. I am. I am, actually. Yeah. Afterwards, Zess was dismissed from the police academy, and then Lorencia Bembenek endured a damn near grand jury investigation from police brass because she was at the concert with Zess. Her job was threatened, charges were threatened, her her integrity was insulted, and she was told to resign for being a disgrace to the badge. Also, after each of these interrogations, Lori was ordered to write an official report regarding her whereabouts and doings. Lori's resolve to become a cop was only strengthened by their bullshit. She graduated sixth in her class but also couldn't help but notice more than a dozen recruits had quit or resigned. All but one of them were women or minorities. Remember those government incentive equity hiring programs I mentioned, Don? Kind of, yeah. I know there's been a lot of, has, lot of cocaine since yeah. then. Yeah, yeah. Not for us, my Not dear. Not for us, no. no. So allegedly, the Milwaukee PD was manipulating the system by fulfilling hiring quotas to get the money and then quickly firing the same minorities for very menial transgressions. Of course, the firings, as the stories go, came after weeks and months of hazing and mistreatment. Sexist, vulgar, and racist comments were standard. But they were getting that money. Oh, yeah. Now, I understand this was a quote, different time, that shop talk can be a little rough and dirty. Lori put up with plenty of harassment, but she noticed infractions, severe ones for which white men got a pass, black and female recruits were in turn 
fired, or punished severely. Nevertheless, Lorencia Bembenek graduated in the summer of 1980 and was immediately assigned to the rough Southside 2nd District. Lori's two-week term of active duty field training was intentionally over the top. She was doing things that none of the other rookies in her class were being asked to do. At the end of it, the officer who trained Lori said, quote, Bembenek, I'm putting my ass on the line for telling you this, but you've been a good shit, so I figured I owe you. The officer went on to tell Lori that he was ordered to give her a really hard time because the stripes wanted her to quit. That was in August. Just a few weeks later, after not quitting, Lori was officially dismissed for non-truthfulness and filing a false official police report. This is where things really start to spiral. And we're going to hit them rather quickly. Lori files a grievance with the union. In September, she learns that Judy Zess signed a statement that Lori was using pot with her at the concert. Lori takes a job as a waitress at the Playboy Club in Lake Geneva. She works there for about one month. So as a Maintaining server. her friendship with Judy Zess, who persisted to ask her to move in with her. So she's just, she's a server. She's she is, not, not a centerfold or anything like that. There's a Playboy club in Lake Geneva, mm-hmm. and Lori Bembenek was hired to be a server at that club. Gotcha. She was okay. never anything more than a server there. Okay. She maintains her friendship. In spite of Judy's S saying she smoked pot with her and got her in a bunch of trouble, they maintain the friendship. Judy really likes her. Is like, we should still move in together. Lori's like, I don't want to. In October, the union drops her grievance. After that, she has an unemployment hearing. 25 police show up as witnesses against her in an unemployment hearing. Under oath, Vice Officer Paul Will claims Lori was arrested at the concert, but released when police determined she did not possess marijuana. There's no record of this arrest. He was still allowed to say it in trial unchallenged. Judy's trial for marijuana possession lasts three days, ending in a hung jury. The charges are later dismissed. But can, can we just stop and a nickel bag? Okay, like my pinky's worth of a joint. They did a three-day trial on her for that. Okay, 1980 that we're in. It's so absurd. So anyways, and, much, and, and then, and then co- they were dismissed. And how much cocaine do you need for a 20-foot line of it? <laughs> I'm just curious. Like, I mean, it's definitely. We're going to, you know. someone out there, if you'll do the math on that, send us a message. We can't do the math. Also, yeah. Lori works part time at a gym and she enlists in the Air Force. She meets Fred Schultz for the first time at a party. He shows interest. She brushes him off. Lori passes the Air Force exam, but has to wait three months before shipping to basic. Sometime in November, Lori gets a hold of the naked cop photos from a guy named Eddie at an East Side club. In December, she meets with a rep from the Equal, Oper- the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. The rep says she has a case for sex discrimination and advises Lori to bring the photos to the assistant U.S. attorney. The assistant U.S. attorney has already been documenting the way minority and female officers were being handled by the MPD. The case is building strength. 
Lori could not stand the notion that she was fired over a rumor when there was clear photographic evidence of police doing much worse. So she brought the photos to Internal Affairs. They were not happy to see her. So they were they they weren't they were like oh yeah these photos cool uh, neat what are you but doing what the hell here are you doing those? here what are you doing here with those cool. was what they said to her the girl who was fired for allegedly possessing marijuana with the girl who was later acquitted so it's such bullshit so she met Fred again and this time remember that whole long list of charming traits he had she couldn't resist them all. The two hit it off and were dating in earnest by the end of December. Did she have to look at the photos? Oh, yeah. She didn't recognize him? I don't know. You know, there was a lot of partying. You know, there was definitely things were things were moving at a fast pace. And did, she was just so charming. It didn't matter to did he, her. Did he tell her what she what he did for a living he yes she knew that he oh everyone knew he was a cop it was and no so, secret they're all cops you know he's a cop he knew that she was formerly a cop and he knew that she was doing the lawsuit and supported her equal rights that's what he okay. said i support oh, you Lori. i bet he i did. support you oh i bet he supported that this. so hard oh yeah. man oh yeah fucking guy So Fred's been divorced for a few months, but the terms of the settlement with his ex-wife were still being argued, specifically alimony and child support. After the divorce, Fred moved in with his cop buddy, Stu Honick. Shortly after Fred moved in, Stu Honick started screwing Fred's ex-wife. That's about the time Lori met him. The friendship between Stu Obviously didn't last. Fred decided, I don't want to be a cuckold. They got into a fist fight. And then there was some very uneasy living. Lori receives regular death threats at her parents' house. A rat is left on the hood of her car and her tires are slashed. In January, the Air Force declines Lori's acceptance due to the litigation. Sweet Fred swoops in and offsets this devastating news by proposing to Lori. And for some godforsaken reason, Lori says yes. Oh, my gosh. So the two elope and get married in Indiana. Fred's idea. I know if I want to elope, I definitely want to go to Indiana. (laughs) No offense, you Indiana friends, but I I absolutely want to elope there. I want to go all the way to Indiana and elope. Certainly not Hawaii or Vegas. Or or, Vegas. Yeah, it's a little bit, a little over there across the state line. For his idea. So on January 31st, they were eloped and married. And that was quickly followed by a reluctant decision to move in with Judy Zess at her two-bedroom apartment. It's a very Three's Company, right? Yeah, Three's Company. Mr. Roper was not there, but it was definitely Three's Company. And Zess never really invited him to be part of the move-in package. So she was kind of pissed that Lori brought him along. Through February, Zess starts dating a, quote, bodybuilder from the same apartment building. He's a huge, hulking, aggressive brute of a man who drives a flashy Corvette and never comes over until after Fred leaves because he, quote, hates pigs. Fred gets the final settlement from his divorce and is distraught. He owes his ex half his pension, half his check... The house he built, plus child support. To top it off, she sold his dog. A Great Dane. Smokey, cover your ears. 
Yeah. A great day, no less. Yeah. Plus, his visitation with the boys would be limited to weekends. Fred claimed he was getting financially raped. Lori wondered what Christine, his ex, might have had on Fred that allowed him to be put in such a bad position. Nobody she knew getting a divorce was getting put in a position like that. Unfortunately for Lori, that thought did not linger. Well, and clearly, Fred is absolutely the victim here. I mean, I'm sure he did nothing to warrant that kind of decision from the the court. He is a perpetual victim, of course. I feel so bad for him. Oh, it's only going to get worse for poor Fred. Man, the 80s. Can I just say the 80s? What a time. What a time. What a time. We're not even even halfway through this. In March 1981, Zess gets them evicted for throwing a party. Fred and Lori weren't even unpacked yet. Fred is constantly fighting with his ex, Christine. Christine changes the locks to the house because Fred kept inviting himself over. Unbeknownst to Lori and his ex-wife, Fred steals his son's key to make several copies. By April, the group finds a three-bedroom, two-bathroom apartment and start moving in. The bathroom on Judy Zess's side is always clogging. Lori, although never wanting a domestic life or to be a mother, starts becoming a little closer with Shannon and Sean. Fred's boys. Lori learns that Fred's least favorite brother's wife was best friends with Christine, and they all hate Lori. And that shitty brother is named John. John the shitty brother. (laughs) Lori notices Fred continuously lies to his ex-wife and often uses Lori as an excuse not to participate in family things. So she is being perpetually used as, as a scapegoat for him, for family functions that he doesn't want to go to, making all of them think Lori is a bitch. Is a a piece of shit. But really, it's Fred. Really, it's Fred. Okay. Lori gets hired as a campus security at a local college. Then her EEOC fact-finding hearing comes up, lasting several excruciating hours, in which Lori makes her case for discrimination. She's told afterward by her attorney that a cause or no cause determination would later be made. If there's cause, which he felt there would be, the case would be pursued through the Department of Justice. Her lawsuit gets public traction. Lori openly connects police to illicit interactions with bad people in seedy places. Things heat up between Judy Zess and Tom Gartner. Tom is often traveling for, quote, bodybuilding competitions. Oh, he's the, he's the, the dude that hates pigs? Yep. Okay. Well, and here's a little more juice on Tom G. His best friend was a cop named Sasson who was, quote, mistakenly killed by another cop under highly suspicious circumstances while off-duty. <sighs> The cop he was shot by was an off-duty police officer who responded out of his district and then accidentally shot him. Guess who pulled the trigger on Sasson? No. Guess. Do I have to? Yes. What's his face? Super cool Fred. Super cool Shut shit. Up. Yes. Are you Fred, serious? Fred fucking Schultz. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So that's Judy Zess's boyfriend. Tom's not happy when he finds out and makes the connection, boy, let me tell you. But it doesn't matter, because Judy Zess is in love, and she moves in with Tom. But she doesn't give up her key to their new place. A couple weeks later, 
In early May, Tom is arrested for cocaine trafficking. Oh, come on. Federal, Are you serious? Federal drug charges. Oh, yeah. Tom, Tom, <laughs> you know what he did for a living? He was a, quote, bodybuilder. You couldn't make this shit up no, if you tried. Like, you can't. How, oh, my God. It's funny, but not funny. I, I mean, it's, it's, this was the 80s. Get, like, the, flow, this was, get the flow chart going, girl. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you. Yeah. And Fred is constantly arguing with his ex. And now that Judy bailed on them, they're again looking for a new place. And all of their stuff is still in boxes. On the night of May 27th, 1981, Judy Zess had plans with Lori. But Judy bailed. So Lori made plans with one of her old friends, Mary Lynn. But Mary Lynn also couldn't make it leaving Lori stuck at home while Fred worked the night shift. He called Lori several times to check on her. On May 28, 1981, at approximately 2 a.m., someone effortlessly entered the home of 30-year-old Christine Schultz, tied her hands with a clothesline, gagged her with a blue bandana, and threatened her with a gun. 10-year-old Sean and 7-year-old Shannon were fast asleep in the other room. The intruder then went across the hall, entered the boys' room, put a gloved hand over 10-year-old Sean's mouth, and slipped a wire around his neck. Seven-year-old Shannon woke up and kicked at the huge man who let out a growl, shoved the boys aside, and rushed out of the room. Disoriented, the boys hear their mother cry out, followed by a loud bang! And they went to the doorway of their bedroom in time to see a man flee down the stairs, taking three steps at a time. Christine Schultz was bleeding profusely from a wound on the top of her shoulder. Sean tried desperately to stop the bleeding with gauze, but his mother died within minutes. Oh, that poor baby. Then, Sean phoned for help, calling Stu Honick, who then called 911. Four police officers arrive at the scene and were let in by the boys. Honick went up the steps and was the first to, to see Christine. He touched her body and moved her and saw that she was not breathing. A clothesline bound her hands and she was gagged with a blue bandana. Police cut the cord around the victim's hands and wrapped her body in plastic. They removed a brown hair from the calf of her leg. The medical examiner was not called to the scene until two hours after the initial response. In fact... Fred Schultz was there just a few minutes after the first responders, even before the medical examiner or the ambulance. An hour after that, the ambulance came to transport the victim to the police morgue. At about 4 a.m., two detectives came over to question Lorencia Bembenek. They asked if Fred was jealous of Stu's relationship with Christine, if she owned an off-duty gun or a green jogging suit. An hour after that, Fred showed up with his partner, Durfee, explaining their inexplicably their first action upon entering the house was to inspect Fred's off-duty weapon, a 38 revolver. They, they inspected this weapon in front of Lori. They checked and confirmed it had not been recently fired or cleaned. It was actually dusty. According to Fred, they just had to clear that gun and make a report on it. Shortly after that, Fred brought Lori downtown to ID the body. 
He went into the morgue alone with Lori and moved Christine's corpse around to get a better look at the bullet at the bullet's entry point, which had a radial imprint showing the barrel of the gun seared into Christine's skin. See anything wrong yet, Don? I don't know where to start. Well, like, what? do you what? want to start now or do you want to wait till it all, you know, it all? No, I mean, it's, it's all so this fricked up. Like, already? It, it, yeah, no, I mean, we may as already well Already wonky. Mm-hmm, yeah. Well, it gets better. I have so, okay. Throughout all of this, going through the, the morgue and everything and then back into the offices at the police station, Fred was carrying the off-duty gun in his briefcase. You know, the one they checked? His service revolver was still on his hip. Then, Schultz went into a private meeting with commanders on the top floor and left to write his report. At no point did anyone record the serial number of the checked weapon. And the private meeting on the top floor with the chief was never logged. Police took witness statements from Sean and Shannon. Both boys claim it was a huge man with a long red or brown ponytail. Sean said the man was wearing a green army jacket, non-camouflage, with black low-cut shoes like police wear, the boy's words. Shannon, the younger boy, said it might have been a green jogging suit. Sean insisted it was an army jacket. The boys got a look at the intruder in their room and then again when he shoved past them after shooting their mother. There was no evidence of a break-in, and the doors had heavy-duty locks, including a deadbolt. Police, it was announced on TV, were looking for a tall male suspect with long brown or red hair who possibly owned a green jogging suit. They described him as a bulky, a bulky six-foot-tall male with a jogging suit. So Evidently, male, right? they rolled with Shannon's word that it was a jogging suit, the younger boy although Sean insisted it was an army jacket. Oh, it also turns out Fred's extra key, the one he wasn't supposed to have, that was missing. Allegedly, he gave one of, he gave one of those keys to detectives when they had to go back and dust for prints. But the other one was, or at least had been, in a box in their house somewhere the night of the murder. You know... The house where Lori was the night of the murder, the same one where Schultz and Durfee cleared his off-duty revolver? Naturally, Fred had an easy alibi the night of the killing. He was on duty with Durfee, investigating a break-in when the shooting occurred. Of course, there's no proof of this, aside from each other's word that it was true. A number of potential suspects, including Fred and Lori, were asked to take a lie detector. Lori refused. Fred took his and... Evidently passed, although a number of not-so-great truths did emerge. He was abusing Christine and cheating on her. Forensics came back, determining there was blood on Fred's service weapon. Not the weapon they checked, his service weapon. In fact, it was blood type A, the same as Christine, but also his. Um, and he just had a scab that day that got into the barrel of his gun, so of it was course okay. It did. And I mean, yeah. and the, no, the, it was fine. The the abuse. Don, he had a scab. Yeah, he itched it. it. Then he touched the barrel of his gun, fingered it. Blood right. got in there. It happens. It happens. It happens. It happens. Yeah. So and, and you know, abusing Christine. I mean, no big deal. No, people definitely don't escalate or anything like that. Abuse, no. it's fine. There's no reason to, no reason to consider him a suspect. Therefore. 
And he's on, a cop. Yeah, and he's a Therefore, cop. Therefore, it's fine. Yeah, it's totally fine. All of which means, of course, on June 24th, 1981, police arrest Lorencia Bembenek for the murder of Christine Schultz. I'm she, sorry, wait, did she color her hair red? No, Don, she got arrested. She was blonde. She got She's arrested. Blonde. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. it was uh, a man with a green jogging suit, super huge, super tall, but right? Yeah. Yeah. And she this was little she model was not... blonde. Okay. She's just... arrested. Okay. I just yeah. wanted to make sure that. Yeah. You got it. Okay. She was taken into custody from her workplace. The contents of her locker, which included a hairbrush, were confiscated by investigators. The DA, after the arrest, pressured her into taking a plea deal and testifying against Fred, alleging. He knew the two worked together to murder Christine, but Lori refused his offer, choosing to do things, quote, the hard way. She refused to admit guilt when she knew she was innocent. How dare her? That's ridiculous. (sighs) Yeah, well... I, I feel like I'm getting getting spicy. I'm going to tell you, you should get spicy, and it's weird because... Lori in the future says without question that she, the, her biggest regret in life is not taking a plea deal. And she goes on to say that she thinks anybody ever offered a plea deal should take it because it's so fucking bad when you don't and it doesn't work for you. But that's oh. a whole other, whole other thing altogether. Wow. So Lori makes bail and quickly accepts at Fred's behest the services of infamous criminal lawyer Don Eisenberg a man who was said to take far too much enjoyment in hanging out with and defending mafia-level scumbags. Anybody remember Don Eisenberg? He represented Barbara Hoffman, who we covered on the episode a handful of episodes back. Guess what? Eisenberg still drives a Jaguar. He was the, the botulism Barbie one. Botulism Barbie lawyer. That's right. Yep. Yeah. He fucked it up for Barbara Hoffman. Guess mm-hmm. what he's about to do for old... Anyways... So Fred pays the initial retainer, and overnight, Lorencia Bembenek became known in the press as Bambi, the killer playboy bunny centerfold. (sighs) Bombshells were dropped at the preliminary hearing in August. Durfee, Fred's partner, lost his original report from the night of the murder. In fact, his whole memo book from that era was lost. Don't worry, though, Don. It's fine because he managed to remember to file an official report two weeks later. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm happy for him. I bet that worked out well. Yeah, it worked out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Durfee also denied assessing Fred's off-duty weapon and any declaration related to it not being fired. He also admitted to his failure to record the serial number. What a silly goose. But how could you concurrently admit to those two things? I don't know, but he did. After that, there was a brief recess. Lori ran into her old pal Judy Zest in the hallway. They briefly chatted, and Judy happily showed off an antique engagement ring from the pawn shop and told her that Tom Gartner, currently in jail for drug trafficking, was going to marry her. They're getting married. Yeah. Here's my pawn shop ring. My man's in jail. We getting married. What's up? How do you I, think this how do you think this brief is gonna go? I bet the marriage went even better. Yeah. Yeah. Fred took the stand, testifying he did, in fact, his off-duty revolver, and it was not used, but he forgot to write the report on it. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Fred inspected his own. Yeah. He admits gun. that, yep, 
in spite of Durfee saying he didn't, Fred says, well, I did. And um, it wasn't used, but I forgot to write, write a report on it. Also on the stand at the prelim trial, he couldn't help but admit that Lori might have had access to a key that he lost in a box somewhere in their house with all their shit they were moving. Fred ended his testimony with a tearful remembrance of his ex-wife. Not a great look for Lori. Stu Honick testified that he also had a key to the house and that Christine often told him that Lori hated her. Then, the next, and by far the most damning testimony came from Judy, the Judas Zess. Judy who was engaged to a drug trafficker whose best friend was killed by press by Fred Schultz, Judy, who got fired from the PD for smoking weed, told the court that Lori made numerous threats against Christine in her presence and that Lori owned a green jogging suit, a blue bandana, and a clothesline like the one found around Christine's hands. Judy even went, went so far as to say Lori asked her if her boyfriend could put a hit on Christine. Sean, meanwhile, the oldest boy, insisted over and over the killer could not have been Lori because the man was huge. Quote, even if she was wearing shoulder pads like a football player, it could not have been Lori. Besides, I know Lori. Lori always smells good because she likes to wear perfume. I didn't smell any perfume. He again mentioned the manly growl and reiterated the attacker was not wearing a green jogging suit. It was a green army jacket. Dumb kid who's an eyewitness. What does he know? Not shit, apparently. Let me tell you. Both boys asserted the killer was a man. Prosecutors then alleged the boys were coerced by Fred Eisenberg and Lori. The preliminary happened in August. The judge wanted additional time before he could determine whether or not to bind the defendant over for a jury trial. A decision was expected in October. After the prelim, Fred's complete shit-ass piece-of-shit brother John sent a letter to the judge saying that he was certain Lori was guilty and that Sean had told him his dad made him lie. Total, total lie. Before the decision to proceed was reached, Eisenberg called Lori to a private meeting in Madison. There, he told, he told Lori, prosecutors were still willing to take a plea deal. According to Eisenberg, they believed Fred either hired someone to kill Christine or that he and Lori did it together. Either way, they wanted to avoid trial and were willing to give her a deal if she testified against Fred. But Lori refused to admit guilt for something she did not do. She declined the plea deal. In October, after declaring this case was, quote, the most contradictory, questionable, and circumstantial case I've ever seen, the judge decided to allow a trial on the basis that Lori was, quote, the only person with access to the murder weapon. Oh, P.S. You know, um, Fred's gun that was inspected at the apartment by Durfee and Fred hours after the murder and declared to not be the murder weapon, but also it was now later to be declared to be the murder weapon 
after Fred was the only one to have access to it for three straight weeks. That, that one. So she had access to that gun, making her the killer. This is a mockery of, of our judicial system. Oh, yeah. And just an absolute mockery of it. Like, it's insulting. This is, it's this insulting is, to intelligent people everywhere. You know what? You could be a monkey and this would be insulting. <laughs> I mean, come on. Like, According to ballistics experts, both blood and tissue would have blown back into the murder weapon. And this was a rather easy determination to make based on the entry shot. In truth, Judy Zess, Tom Gartner, and Fred Schultz all had access to that gun if it was, in fact, in the apartment. A week or so after that, Judy Zess was robbed at gunpoint in the parking lot of the apartment where she lived with Tom. It was alleged the robbers were after leftover drugs and money. Judy's description of one of her assailants is nearly identical to the suspect described by Sean and Shannon. The man was wearing a wig, used a 38, and handcuffed her. This was never cross-referenced against the Schultz investigation. Was, was it Lori? Did Lori do it? Did Lori mug her? <laughs> Just curious. It's a fair question. Then, on October 27th, 1981... Eisenberg received a six-page letter from convicted felon Frederick Horenberger. Remember him? Oh, yeah. Fred's old drinking buddy? Mm -hmm. The letter detailed a wicked plan by Judy Zess to implicate Lori for the murder in exchange for leniency on Tom Gartner, her fiancé. Horenberger was sleeping with Judy while Tom was in jail. He even described the recording device Judy was given by detectives to use on phone calls. It gets juicier. Judy's How? Oh, buddy. Judy Zess, at the request of her husband, Tom Gartner, the drug trafficker, was sleeping with Detective Frank Cole, the man working Christine's murder case. According to Horenberger, this was all happening in early to mid-June, in the weeks before Lori's arrest. That was also about the time detectives suddenly found a reddish-brown wig clogging the drain at the complex where Fred, Lori, and sometimes Judy stayed. Now, get your flowchart ready because it just keeps I going. I have hang on. Oh, I have so many lines like crossing all of them. I don't even like I, I, I can't even keep up at this point. Judy went on to claim it was none other than Fred Horenberger who mugged her. That was the drinking buddy of other Fred. Of course. Okay. Three men were, sub, were sub, subsequently convicted for robbing Judy's ass. Danny Gilbert. This is the first time we've heard his name, but it's relevant because guess what? Danny Gilbert was stopped by police less than two miles from the Schultz house the night of the murder. Quick question. Who was he freaking? Was he, do we know who he we was have not. It's the first with? time we're hearing his name. He is okay. one of the three men convicted of robbing Judy. But he's not having sex with Lori or Judy nope. or anybody else? Nope. Okay. Danny G was just there okay. to rob shit. And maybe, okay. maybe he murdered because he was there... Sure. Nearby the house the night of the murder, but who knows? Okay. Um, and then, of course, Fred Horenberger was the third man 
charged with the mugging of Judy Zess. Hornberger pleaded not guilty, but was convicted on Zess's testimony. And he was sleeping with Judy Zess, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, he was sleeping with Judy Zess while Tom G. was in jail. You guys, this is... And him and Tom G. were old buddies, so... Of course they were. The trial of 22-year-old Lorencia Bembenek, not so lovingly referred to as Bambi Bembenek by the press, began in late February 1982. Newspapers had her guilty long before she was ever tried. They distorted facts, they wrongfully called her a Playboy centerfold bunny, and of course the papers declared her a Svengali. Who Who do you think is the Svengali in this story so far? One of the Freds. Yeah. I mean It's a Fred. It's a Fred. It's not a Lori. Anyways, the trial lasted three weeks. The theory How was it even at trial? How did it even get there? <laughs> Lori never thought it would get there, neither did I. Let me tell you. <laughs> the theory argued by prosecutors, here it goes. After midnight on May 28th, Lori donned a green jogging suit and a reddish brown wig pulled back into a ponytail covered her face, jogged 18 blocks in her police shoes, entered Christine Schultz's home with the house with the house key Fred kept in their apartment, a key that was never found, overpowered Christine, tied her up, pushed pause on that for a minute, ran into the boys' room, threatened their lives, ran back across the hall, murdered Christine, then jogged 18 blocks home, disposing of her jogging suit, cleaning the gun, and simply going to sleep until receiving Fred's call at 2.40 a.m. that Christine was murdered. And the man, the huge hulking man the boys saw, Don, it wasn't really a man at all. It was a woman with a wig and a jogging suit. And you know what? And no perfume. Don pretty fucking simple when you think about it I, I mean it makes complete sense to me yeah i mean 18 blocks it would you know i know that that wouldn't take me 40 or 40 minutes like no, what really of course not like just just to run 18 blocks she was you know, track high school track star you know oh i mean she was wearing a jogging suit that probably added to it probably made it easier <laughs> you pick up speed in the jogging yeah. suit i mean it was the 80s those things those windbreaker no. suits were incredible now You can't have a theory without a motive, of course, and the motive in this case was that Lori was a cunning, money-hungry, cold-hearted, playboy vixen, bitch enchantress who wanted to live a fast lifestyle and all of the divorce-related financial strain on her loving, magnificent cop of a a husband was cock-blocking her dreams. Sure. And last time I checked, I know, I think cops make a lot of money. Right? So, so much money. They make so much let me, money. Let me tell you, ladies, if you want a fast life full of fancy shit, you yeah. marry a cop. Yeah. Lori had it all figured out. I mean, if you're going to marry a cop, I would marry the one that is doing that and, and can afford a 20 foot line of cocaine yeah. because <laughs> that he's probably making more money on that. So just some marriage advice there if you're looking for one. But uh, yeah, I mean, that honestly makes sense. It's to a total me. package. I, yeah. And, right? and Fred seems amazing. He seems really, really cool. Oh, yeah. guess guess what? Fred was uh, Fred was given immunity in exchange for his oh, testimony. Of course he oh. was. Oh. Of course he was. It's f- just so disgusting. Anyways, some key witnesses against Lori. Frances Zess, Judy's mom, claimed she also heard Lori wanted to have the victim, quote, blown away. Judy reiterated her statements from preliminary adding that Lori 
also owned the blue bandana and the wig. Another witness claimed Lori's mother was rummaging through a dumpster on June 18th, insinuating the 67-year-old woman, shorter than the dumpster, was removing evidence. The magical green jogging suit that was never found. Never mind the fact that Virginia, Lori's mom, didn't even have a car that day because Lori's dad drove it to work. Gary Shaw, some guy from the police academy, said that he had seen Lori Bembenek in a green jogging suit one time. The owner of the old wig world shop came out of the woodworks and remembered Bembenek purchasing a wig. First, she said Lori used a credit card. Lori doesn't own a credit card. Oh, then she said, oh, shit, you know what? It was a check and I saw her ID. Lori doesn't have a checking account. Oh, well, it must have been cash. Yeah, she bought that wig in cash. There was no record of the sale. John Schultz, Fred's total shitbag brother, testified that Sean had told him he hadn't seen anything the night of his mother's murder and that the killer covered his face completely. John again claimed the boys were told to lie by Lori, Schultz, and Eisenberg. Now, if you're up and up on the way trials work, this is completely hearsay. But it was allowed to stand by the judge. Why wouldn't it be? Why not? Yeah, it all makes sense. Oh, I'll tell you why here in a minute. Fred, of course, as I said, was given his immunity in exchange for his testimony. So everything in this trial was extremely circumstantial. Oftentimes, prosecution witnesses were allowed to testify to things that seemed like hearsay. But when similar testimony was attempted by the defense, the judge would not allow it. Now, here's a weird coincidence. The trial judge was previously Tom Gartner's lawyer. Oh, my God. How small is Milwaukee? (laughs) Like, what? How is this even possible? How does Eisenberg not object to this guy being the the, the freaking judge? Why is it even allowed? Let alone Eisenberg sucks. Tom Tom G being allowed to be a... His wife is a star witness, so... Eisenberg makes a good show of it, but he was really sloppy, and he pushed the judge's buttons constantly, nearly to the point of being held in contempt of court. In spite of Eisenberg's self-proclaimed, quote, fucking great defense of Lori Bembenek, on March 9th, 1982, Lorencia Bembenek was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison at the Teixeira Correctional Institution. Guilty. How's that one feel? Not guilty and life in prison. Although there appeared to be an alarming number of inconsistencies. Alarming is not even (laughs) dramatic enough. Inconsistency is not even the word. Like, nothing matches up here. Nothing. Well, if it makes you feel any better... Lori went on to lose three appeals in under 10 years. Who, who, were the, who, who was on the panel of the Court of Appeals? Oh. Like someone's mom? Like, I mean, what the hell? It was odd that everybody related to prosecuting Lori, every witness, all, all of them had a cop behind, behind her. So after the conviction, let me tell you who lived it up. Oh, oh Fred. Fred. Oh, Fred. <laughs> Hopped on down to Florida, bought a boat, a fancy watch, got a suntan, and then showed up looking like he was fresh off the beach to tell Lori, quote, I feel like you don't love me anymore. 
You have no idea how hard it is for me out there. I want a divorce. So Fred is the beginning of the end for Florida and why, why they're the, the, the butt of all the jokes, then, right? <laughs> like Fred started it all. Sorry to anybody who from Florida. But yeah. You guys are made fun of a lot. I'm sorry. You are. I just went with it. Adjusting to life in prison was hell for Lori, and correctional officers there, as well as other inmates, wanted to be sure the celebrity guest got the best treatment. In spite of that, Lori went on to spearhead several efforts in prison that vastly improved the lives of female prisoners. She got improved visitation rights. And actually, she didn't get improved visitation rights. What she did was just get women the same rights that men already had in prison about five years prior. Sanitation also improved with the help of Lori. Women were still peeing in bedpans in most of the prisons when she arrived. Living quarters. Federal law determined prisoners couldn't be more than two per 60 square feet. Of course, this was adjusted in all men's institutions right away. But guess what? Women at Tashida were often stacked three to five per 60 square. Cool. She also helped get more rights and access to work, education, and exercise. While Lori fought battles on the inside, her supporters were not giving up on the outside. Hang on one second. Sure. This is, this is the, the year that you were born. This yes. is in your lifetime. So This is in your lifetime. Literally, I'm, the commission younger, of this murder was happening as my mom was in labor. Yes. Like, yeah. like so... Like literally. But, right. But like this is, this is 1982, right? And this is... 81. Yep. 82 but, convicted. But she's in, yep. but she's in yep. prison. We're in prison yep. now. We're going through the years in prison. This is in your lifetime. Yes. They did not have toilets in their hotel. And, and, and so I wasn't going to add this because there's... Is. In their hotel. Excuse me. Well, the reason I say hotel, I mean, Don, the reason I say hotel, you'll love this. When... Newspapers did an expose on the prison where Lori Bembenek was staying. They literally called it like a fucking country club. Yes. This is where they're sending killer Playboy Bunny. It's a country club. Look, there's an apple orchard. That was said while she was in prison sharing a bedpan with four other women in a 60 square foot shitbox. And then, and I then, mean, and then people literally. are like, how dare they let my taxes go to these country clubs for prisoners? It, it drummed up a whole thing, but that's, we're derailing. We're derailing. It's, it's so crazy. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Over the years, a shocking number of revelations should have changed the tide of the courts. But time and again, the system refused to listen to reason or acknowledge new evidence. Now, let's start with the list of things jurors did not hear at trial that were already known. Horenberger's letter and all the incriminating evidence against Judy within it was not allowed to be shared at trial because that was hearsay. Nor did they hear Schultz's ties to Horenberger or that Horenberger was convicted of robbing Judy Zess or that one of the perpetrators who robbed Judy wore a wig and a jogging suit. Jurors also did not hear that Judy Zess's boyfriend, Tom G., blamed Fred Schultz for the murder of his best friend and often said he would get even. They also didn't hear from Eugene Kershick, Christine's divorce attorney. Kershick said that Schultz threatened Christine just weeks before the murder. 
telling her, quote, I'm going to blow your fucking head off. Christine also believed and said to her lawyer that she was being followed in the weeks prior to her death. And none of this was allowed due to hearsay because Kershik never requested a police report when reporting this information to the police. Twelve Area residents, including two police officers, had seen a man matching the boy's description jogging in the neighborhood a few weeks before the murder. Even the hair, ponytail, jogging suit, and blue bandana were identified by these witnesses. Lastly, two nurses at a nursing home just one mile from the murder scene called the police after witnessing someone lying in the parking lot of the nursing home. They both saw a man with reddish-brown hair and a green jogging suit in the bushes around 2.50 a.m. All of this was known going into Lori's trial. None of it was brought up. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. How? (laughs) Yeah, uh, you know, this is one of those times where people throw out the word conspiracy and it feels a little dirty to use that word like it's a bad word, like shit might not be true, like you're a wacko, but my goodness gracious, Don, how? So, a military veteran, former cop, and private detective named Ira Robbins picked up the torch of Lori's innocence. He was initially given $3,000, but he refused money after that. His crusade kept hope alive for Lori Bembenek. He put years of his life into this case, and Ira uncovered all kinds of dirt. The wig was taken from the neighbor's drain, not Lori's drain, and Judy Zess was the last person to use that shitter. He also made the link between Schultz and Horenberger. According to Ira's information, those two men were friends. Schultz hired Horenberger to kill his wife, and there were actually two men in the home that night. They awakened the boys with a specific intent of having them witness the fact it was not their father. Now, that gets crazy because Hornberger always denied it publicly, although all of his inmate buddies narked on him and said it. But get this, none of them would swear to a signed statement until years later when Hornberger died under suspicious circumstances, a suicide that in 1991, years later, Hornberger dies by suicide after taking hostages. The only witnesses to his suicide were cops. Ira Robbins said that on his autop- in his autopsy, there were dog bites all over his legs. Robbins never believed it was a suicide. Now, that's a whole other thing altogether. I can't... I, I feel like we need a, like a PowerPoint behind us. Like, oh, yeah. I'm- so Ira also uncovered discrepancies in the reports between the medical examiner's office and the crime lab. Elaine Samuels, associate medical examiner, removed the bullet and wrote three initials on it, CJS. The bullet presented at trial had six initials, three of which were in different handwriting. Furthermore, Samuels claims all the hair 
found during the autopsy was consistent with the victim. No blonde hair or wig hair was on the body. The crime lab initially processed 20 hairs that matched Samuel's statement. Then, conveniently, after Lori was arrested and her hairbrush confiscated, were five more hairs found and labeled numbers one through numbers 21 through 25, and one of those just so happened to be a blonde, color-processed hair. Samuels fully believed evidence was tampered with. In fact, the blue bandana gag on which the hair was allegedly found was removed from inventory and opened so they could show it to Judy Zess so she could identify it. Two sets of unidentified fingerprints were found at the murder site and no match was ever made, nor were those prints ever cross-referenced against any suspect including Lorencia. Blood found underneath Christine's fingernails was never examined and Lori was never checked for defensive wounds. Judy Zess was never questioned about her whereabouts on the night of the murder, although she had canceled the date to go out with Bembenek, had access to the key, therefore the gun, and the Schultz house. The blood on the walls in the victim's home was never examined to determine its origins. Detectives just took Fred Schultz's word for it when he said the blood was from my Great Dane when it was in heat. You know, the same one that Christine sold three months before the murder? Bemenek's black police shoes were never confiscated or examined. Zess, years later, recanted her statement, claiming it was made under duress and pressure from police and Tom Gartner in exchange for leniency for Tom. Early in the investigation, the state crime lab actually classified the murder as a possible sexual assault case. Bembenek, who refused to submit to a polygraph during the investigation, passed one to perfection in prison. The owner of George's Pub and Grill claims Schultz and Horenberger were drinking together at his bar the night of the murder. And uh, side note, in 1983, old Donald Eisenberg was the subject of a dead-end FBI narcotics investigation that stopped when witnesses went missing. And then in 1984, his license was suspended in Wisconsin for a conflict of interest in another murder case. So the number of discrepancies that were found, that number is higher than actual evidence presented. Yes. <laughs> I had never thought about that, but yeah, as a matter of fact, it is. Now, Schultz had the alleged murder weapon in his possession for literally 22 days following the murder and before it was ever tested in the crime lab. And a neighbor of Christine Schultz reported his 38 Special Magnum was stolen just days before the murder. None of this was enough to budge the judicial system, which outright refused to recognize these revelations in a court of law. It became public that a man by the name of Jacob Whistler, who fell in love with Lori after seeing her picture in the paper, paid as much as $28,000 of her legal fees. Lori had a very brief series of interactions with him as a prisoner, but he got weird on her. More on that in a minute. In 1986, Stu Honick told Lori's parents that $300,000 worth of drugs disappeared from Christine's house the night of the murder, and he believed Fred Schultz took them. I'm sorry. Now Remember Chris, his nice now, boat? Now, and, now yeah. Christine is dealing drugs? Like what? Well, 
Or somebody associated with Christine was stashing them there. Who knows? Another moment of note in 1986. Hitman Joseph Hecht confessed to killing Christine Schultz. He said he was hired for the sum of $9,000 and a bunch of cocaine. Hecht was given instructions to pick up a gun and money in a trash bin behind the Schultz house. Hecht received detailed knowledge about the layout of the Schultz home, information that had never appeared in any news account. His employment records also showed he was absent from work the day of the murder. But when push came to shove, Hecht pleaded the fifth and wouldn't actually testify. Then, Jacob Whistler claimed that he paid Hecht to confess, oh and he God. supplied okay, details. On. Who is Jacob Whistler again? Yeah. Jacob Whistler fell in love okay, with Lori he was, after he saw her picture he was, in the paper, yeah, he and he the paid, paid 30 the... grand of her legal fees. Okay, all right. Then this guy confesses, and Hecht is like, no, he didn't. I paid him to do that. Hecht... Supplied. Who cares what Jacob Whistler said? Who cares? Why are the, they asking him? The DA him? cared a lot that he oh said that my. he paid Heck to say that. And, well, Heck, uh, um, Whistler took it a, a step further. This is how Heck got the details of the house. Because Whistler called Schultz's father, posing as a journalist with the New York Times, and tricked Schultz's dad into giving him the details about the house. That's how Hecht got those details. Whistler, it should be noted, was later convicted and served jail time for threatening to bomb a prison guard that he suspected of being in love with Lori. The years ticked by. Lori made friends in prison, earned a college degree, and got a group of women regularly playing tennis. Now, she had all but given up on ever being set free And then, in 1989, her, quote, testosterone radar went off when she met Dominic Gugliotto, the brother of a fellow inmate. It was love at first sight, and the two were engaged within a few months. Although um, the prison officials denied their right to be married, something about, you know, they can't do it and behind the bars. Anyways, (laughs) so they met, they were in love, and then on July 15th, 1990, afraid she was going to spend the rest of her life behind bars, Lorencia Bembenek made a fucking daring escape from prison with the assistance of her new fiancé. Lori calculated her escape to perfection. Many of the windows in the prison didn't lock, particularly the... (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yes, yes. So in particular, the one in the laundry area. Now, the funny thing about laundry at Tashida, it was the warden's rule that when you were doing laundry, you had to sit there and watch it the whole entire time until it was done. Please, watch this laundry in yes. front of this yep. window that can open and close. That was the rule. So this gave Lori several hours of lead time before prison guards would know she was gone. She easily squeezed out the window after checking out for laundry, made it through the small apple orchard behind the housing unit where cameras couldn't see her. Oh, the luxurious apple luxurious. orchard. Luxurious. Right. Oh, okay. yeah. She, she fled the country club. <laughs> Lori worked her way through the thick forest up a hill wearing a leather jacket until she finally reached the perimeter fence. Using her belt, 
Lori looped the belt around the barbed wire to pull it taut and then clambered over the nine-foot fence, cutting her leg in the process. Nick arrived just in time. She hopped in, and the two were hours down the road before anyone at Tashida noticed her disappearance. Right, because she was still doing laundry. Yep. Right. Of course, it was immediately national news. And in the weeks following, rallies were held. Thousands of people poured into the streets of Milwaukee calling for justice for Lori. The phrase, run, Bambi, run, <laughs> became the rallying call for Bebenek supporters. This and it was, dude, it was a good slogan, though. This case has made me hate the 1980s so hard. Like, Don, I, know I used I, to love the 80s Palumbo. That's actually her nickname in the business. I run Bambi run. Run Bambi run. Wow. Somebody even wrote like a song about it. And so Lori was nowhere to be found, but run Bambi run was on bumper stickers, t-shirts and major news outlets. She became a folk hero. One radio station would send a sticker and a Bambi mask to anyone who called and left their address. Oh, you know what? Actually, we have we have stickers now with our faces on them. So yeah, if you call if you call us and leave us your address, we'll mail you one too. Sure. Wait, what? I. It, it was said that five out of every six Milwaukee citizens believed she was innocent or framed. Bembenek and Gugliotto took new names from tombstones to obtain birth certificates and social security numbers. Using the names Jennifer Volkel and Tony Gazana, the fugitives easily crossed the Canadian border with the fake IDs. I'm, they, gu- I'm guessing somebody named Gugliotto can't, you know, pass with O'Malley or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you're not getting it. So they landed in Thunder Bay, a city on Lake Superior in northwest Ontario. Lori managed to pick up two jobs and enjoyed simple things like silence, privately using a bathroom, Food choices, just being outside and breathing clean air. Dominic, meanwhile, spent all their money on new fishing gear, some cool clothes, and a TV. It was like a permanent vacation for him, and Dominic didn't really understand why Lori didn't want to sit around and watch TV at night. I'm sure she just wanted to do laundry and work out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're going to love this. No. Fred Schultz was interviewed while Lori was on the lam. Here's a few of the lowlights from that interview. Good one. <laughs> Good one. Are you proud of that one? Yeah. Lowlights. Yeah, fuck this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Alfred Schultz said that he was afraid for his life. Of course. Bambi was capable of anything and will kill anyone who gets in her way including the guard that was posted at the laundry room i'm sure (laughs) he went on to say that he installed an elaborate surveillance system around his florida home gugliotto claimed fred was a victim a stooge just like me he said Quote, she's basically just a consummate liar who uses a lot of people. She is using Ira like she's using Dominic right now, just like she used me and Jacob Wessler and Hecht and Don Eisenberg. Quote, she hates guys, she hates men, and that's why she's always using them. And wait, Don, just wait. Then, then, the camera dramatically pans out to reveal... None other 
than Don Eisenberg sitting next to Fred Schultz, and Eisenberg says, Lori's guilty, and I can prove it. Remember him? He was her lawyer. Right. So he yeah. jumped ship. Oh, yeah. Then, okay. Did he jump ship, or was, or was he, he always on playing that ship? for the right he was, ship? He was already on that ship. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the lovebirds on the run lasted for about three months in Thunder Bay before a tourist recognized Lori after seeing her picture on America's Most Wanted. Freaking tourists. Freaking America's they Most Wanted. They wrote her for everything. Lori was working at a busy little restaurant on the, on the bay, and a Canadian immigration authority came in, questioned her, checked her ID, and let her go. Lori played it cool. Said, oh, that's not me. You got the wrong girl. Here's my ID. And he's like, oh, yeah, guess you're right. I'm a nice Canadian cop. We'll see ya. So she got a hold of Dominic, who quickly came to pick her up. Lori wanted to hit the road immediately, but fucking Dominic refused to leave behind his fishing poles. Oh, my. I'm actually beginning to hate the 90s as well. Like, this is... Not without my $1,000 fishing pole, Lori. The two were busted moments before fleeing their home in Thunder Bay. Dominic was quickly extradited, but Lori's story had now drawn the attention of some hard-hitting Canadian defense attorneys who encouraged her to plead with the Canadian government for refugee status. She could claim that she was being wrongfully prosecuted by a corrupt police department and flawed judicial system. Thank you, Canada. Like- <laughs> yes. Seriously. Now, this was an extremely bold move, and it worked Almost perfectly, although not in the way you might think. Of course. Why, why would it at this point? Right. Lori was unlikely to achieve actual refugee status. However, this claim forced the Canadian government to scrutinize her trial and the case. It allowed, in essence, a retrial, which included all the overwhelming legal errors and new evidence Lori's people uncovered over the last nine years. It so was, it's, it's, it's important to, it's to note that, that, that the Crown actually does that. On, on yes. any, they did it in the David Milgard case. Yep. Any cases that are scrutinized or there's issues, they always go back and look at what needs to be improved. Step by step. Yep. Right. But of course... We're not going to do that. We'll allow Canada to do that because they're the friendly ones. They're yeah. the nice ones. They have well, it on license plates even. It's, it's weird that like Lori actually noted that during her arrest, when they came to arrest her and Dominic, these, these psychotic killer fugitives, they didn't throw flash grenades or barrel down the no. door. They literally knocked and politely entered. They didn't yeah. even handcuff Lori when they put her in the car. Excuse me, ma'am. That's, <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry. So anyways, that... Yeah. So... This, this like retrial was like a really smart and shrewd way to force the new evidence to be recognized. Now, this effort was led by a man named Frank Morocco. He was a Canadian that actually wrote the book, The Annotated Immigration Act on Immigration Law for the Canadian government. You can't have a better lawyer on your side. You know that the improper use of the word literally drives me figuratively insane. The guy literally, the, the guy literally wrote literally. the book. I said like actually. He, he literally yes, wrote literally. the book. Literally, 
Literally. Like, yeah, that is, I'm, I'm using it. I'm, okay. I'm using it. No, it's okay he, right now. No, he yeah. literally wrote the book. Yeah. Okay. He did that. And he worked in conjunction with Chicago attorney Sheldon Zenner, a former federal prosecutor and one of the country's most respected defense lawyers on the U.S. side. Ira Robbins also did his part to ensure no stone was left unturned. Morocco hammered home that Lori was the star witness in an Equal Employment Opportunity Commission investigation. He went so far as to get testimony from former assistant U.S. attorney James Morrison, who stated the federal investigation fell apart after Lori's arrest. He said this was the motive of her poorly mismanaged investigation and trial. He's being very tactful with those words, I tell you what. Lori also passed a 16-hour polygraph test administered by the Canadian Department of National Defense. That sounds horrible. Can you imagine? 16 hours. It was enough that Canadian officials required a commitment that an impartial John Doe re- review would be conducted on Lori's case before they would extradite her. Milwaukee agreed and Lori was then released on bail, believing she'd be free to remain in Canada while the John Doe case was conducted. However, Milwaukee had other ideas and immediately demanded her extradition, which Canada could not stop. Right. After 21 months in Canada, in April of 1992, Lori was shipped back to Tashida and immediately placed back in solitary confinement. Was she allowed to do her laundry? Yeah, probably not. In August, the results of the John Doe investigation refused to agree that Lori was framed. However, they did recognize there were a glaring number of legal miscues, and it was enough to earn her a new trial. The Milwaukee County DA's office made an offer. In return for a no-contest plea to a lesser charge of second-degree murder with credit for time served, Bembenek would be released on parole and there would be no second trial. Of course they're not going to admit it because that screws up every single Everything. case. Every single case Milwaukee Police Department and the DA had ever had a hand in. Yep. Bembenek was officially paroled on December 9th, 1992, and credited with time already served. Those pricks made her stay the final seven months from April to December in solitary confinement. Although she wasn't recognized as innocent in the eyes of the law, she was finally out of prison, if not entirely free. She legally changed her name to Lori Bembenek, Several made-for-TV movies followed, one of them starring Academy Award winner Tatum O'Neill. All the major players of the story got their time in the daytime TV talk show Limelight, Oprah, Geraldo, Locals, Regionals, Nationals, you name it. Laurie turned to painting and art for solace, and after two years and a brief run-in with the law for marijuana possession, Laurie relocated to Vancouver, Washington. There, in 1997, she met and fell in love with Marty Carson. The two dated off and on for some time. He bought a house in 1999 and she moved in and he built her an art studio. She worked in the nonprofit sector for a number of years at the YW Housing, an agency that helped poor women. And she often worked with children and women with criminal records 
to help them find housing and get off the streets. Bembenek also ran a mentoring program to help educate tenants. In 2001 or 2002, a local art gallery in Oregon did an, ex- did an exhibition of about 30 Bembenek paintings. In a freak fire, the building burned to the ground oh, and Lori lost on. all her work. She was never compensated for those losses. I, it's just like, why? Why that punch at the end? Yeah. I know. I'm so sorry. Lori and her supporters never gave up trying to clear her name. In 2003, Dr. Phil agreed to pay the expense of DNA testing on the blood from the crime scene. But the arrangement required Lori to learn the results on camera. The day before taping, Bembenek was flown to Los Angeles and put up in an apartment rented to her by the show. Lori, suffering from PTSD, had a panic attack and jumped from the apartment's second story window badly breaking her foot, which had to be amputated. I know. I know. I know. Shame on you, Dr. Phil, because... They confined her is what she said. She felt threatened in there, and yeah. And and because they wanted the shock factor. Yes. Oof. I'll help you. I'll help you with some innocence, but yeah, we got to tape it for the ratings. Got to do it for the ratings, Don. God, I hate that guy. I really yeah. do. I never really liked him anyway, but now I really don't like yeah. him. Yeah, so the 2003 DNA test showed no evidence of Bembenek's DNA at the crime scene. The tests also uncovered evidence that Schultz had sex with the man before her death. The judge, the judge hearing Bembenek's DNA petition in 2003 ordered that prosecutors produce the test bullet fired from Alfred Schultz's off-duty gun. You know, the bullet which would clarify the ballistics which proved that it was the gun. Miraculously, that test bullet had been destroyed in a mysterious flood back in 86. Ruined the crime lab, or at least that. It should be noted, this proves her innocence before she ever accepts the deal. A new ballistics test was ordered, and the bullet fired from the off-duty gun, the alleged murder weapon, did not match the bullet that killed Christine Schultz, which meant they never even had the real murder weapon this whole time. The one that got her convicted for being in close proximity to the night of the murder. Anyways, too bad. Uh, you gave up your appeal rights when you accepted the plea deal. Sorry. Lori and Marty Carson spent their years together, eventually divorcing, but remaining close friends. Lori moved in across the street following her divorce from Carson. In November of 2010, Lori Bembenek lost consciousness, slipping in and out for several weeks before finally succumbing to liver failure in an Oregon hospice facility. Her name has never been cleared and we wonder we wonder why the judicial system and law enforcement why it became the the age of fuck the police we, there's we, things we, that because people that got people, us there. people actually wonder that and it's because of bullshit like this this woman should have never she just had a she just had shitty taste in men yeah, and that's, friends. That's that's what and yeah, friends. and friends. That's what she's guilty of. That's it. 
Why, why, why do we insist on protecting the shitty people? Why do we insist on protecting them? We, you know, in, 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 in any field, it could be, it could be law enforcement. It can be education. It can be the medical field. It can be absolutely anything. And people insist on protecting them. Why? In this case, it's, it's hard to know, but maybe the first cops who arrive on scene that night find a bunch of dirty, incriminating shit at the home of Christine Schultz. And it incriminates Fred. And Fred's pulled into that meeting. And mm-hmm. he tells the meeting them. That never, and, 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 never and, happened? Yep, the meeting that never happened. They later admitted to it years and years later. But maybe Fred says, look, yeah, these cops found a bunch of dirty shit in my house. But guess what? I'm not going down alone. Mm-hmm. And then Bembenek just fell under their lap yeah. as a as a as a patsy, you know. What um, happened? Anything- I, I don't know, but but clearly there was a lot of bad shit going on, and nothing ever happened with her federal case because she became because yeah she became a murder suspect. So all that discrimination, everything was was bullshit. Did anything ever happen to the Milwaukee Police Department? Not really. Of course not. No. Why would it? Not really. I mean. Yeah, they said, oh, sorry. sorry for your luck, Lori. Take the plea deal now. No contest. Good luck. Yeah. No, no, no repercussions. You know, I'm sure over time people quit or lost their jobs, but there was never any criminal charges for any wrongdoings. Like, leave leave she, quietly yeah. and nothing will happen yep. kind of thing. Yep. Because once again, we're protecting the shitty ones. Yep. I am so fired up right now. Oh, I don't blame you. It is... Uh, in all of our time on Midwest murder, with the exception of perhaps David Milgard, I have never seen a person who was more innocent that was mistreated worse by our justice system than Lori Bembenek. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of them, I think, in our stories who were mistreated, For but sure. nobody not, to this level. Not to this level. Not, not, not between, like this. between her and David Milgard, I, I just can't. I, wow. Sources for this episode of Midwest Murder, State versus Bembenek. Court of Appeals documents, the book Woman on Trial by Lorencia Bembenek, the Bambi Chronicles story by Mark Janet from Playboy, July 1993, MilwaukeeMag.com, Lori's Last Days by Eric Gunn, the Washington Post story Bambi on the Lamb by John Grigna, the Vanity Fair article Was Bambi Framed by Bob Drury and Marnie Inskip, OJP.gov, police1.com, also murderpedia.org is where I found first found Lori's name in the timeline from peopleofhistory.com, clickamericana.com, qualitylocalproducts.com, and onthisday.com. Midwest Murder is co-hosted by Don Palumbo and Jonah Lanto. This episode was written by me, and we sure as heck appreciate each and every one of you for being here with us at Atypical Brewery yeah. and Barrel Works tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much. 